morning. So our first reading is from Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 to 16. Cain murders Abel. Now the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstling of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not so, if, and if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. I am my I am, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, It will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Our second reading is from Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 7 to 11. Laws concerning the sabbatical year. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts, and this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against the neighbor, not exacting it because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Is there, if there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community, in any of your towns within the land that the Lord, your God, is given you, do not be hard-hearted or tie-fisted towards your needy neighbor. 
you should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought thinking, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord of God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, I was just uh, reminded as, as Evelyn was reading the Cain and Abel story of, of a, a joke cartoon I once saw. Uh, there was a, a chimpanzee sat in a cage at the zoo and the chimpanzee was sitting there reading Darwin's Origin of Species and the thought bubble above his head said, uh, am I my keeper's brother? Anyway, I'll leave that one with you. When I was at Greenbelt Festival last weekend, I attended a seminar in which the speaker was making the case that much of the violence that exists in human societies stems from land ownership and property rights. Their reasoning was compelling and I found myself thinking quite a lot about it this week. In essence, the theory is that humans have evolved our systems of structural violence specifically to safeguard the ownership of land and property and to secure the barns, whether they be real or metaphorical, in which to stockpile our harvest, our produce, to enable us to build a surplus year on year. So land ownership and wealth creation then are two sides of the same coin and it is the protection of these assets that so often leads to violence within human society. Translate this into the contemporary context and uh, our speaker at Greenbelt last weekend suggested that the current global economic system built on globalised capital assets is not really so different. The scale may be different, but the idea of ownership based on capital acquisitions such as land and stocks and produce is simply an extension of the great shift in human society that took place at the agrarian revolution. The scale of violence attached to protection of assets and property in the modern world is also, of course, on a far wider scale. We're no longer just protecting our field or our barn, but rather protecting entire nation states who go to war over land and assets. And so we find ourselves in the world of Ukraine and Sudan and the refugee crisis in South Sudan. And, and so it goes on and on. Historically speaking, therefore, I think it is not unreasonable to suggest that the move from hunter-gatherer to 
tiller of the land marked a profound and enduring change in the way humans see themselves in relation to both the lands that they live on and to one another in the societies they construct. It was relatively recent that this happened. Uh, anatomically modern humans have been around, they think, from the record, something like 170 to 200,000 years. And it was only with the domestication of wheat about 10,000 years ago that we got this dramatic turn into the development of uh, human civilization uh, as we would now know it, because it was the domestication of wheat that enabled the transition from hunter-gatherer and nomadic pastoral society into a more sedentary and agrarian-based set of human uh, relationships and ways of living. Without wheat, there would be no system of farming where one plot of land can generate enough food to sustain those who live elsewhere, Without wheat, there would be no surplus to store away to see the wealthy and fortunate, at least, through periods of famine. Without wheat, there would be no cities, because it is only the domestication of wheat that allows some to till the ground and others to build buildings and roads and libraries and civic buildings and so on. Without wheat, there is no viable human societal lever bigger, level bigger than the hunter-gatherer tribe. And the problem we have as modern city-dwelling citizens is that humans evolved in the tribe. We're kind of hardwired for the tribe. And so even those of us who live in cities of many millions of people end up tribalizing fragmenting into our cliques, our networks, our gangs, as we defend our ideological territories from others who might be considered threatening, and so violence comes lurking at the door of our homes, as God said to Cain. The main alternative to a global system based on agrarian capitalism is that of hunter-gatherer nomadic, where there is common ownership of the land and where people relate and live at the local level. Uh, there are still some hunter-gatherer societies in the world where land ownership is understood very differently. And I do need to note that they are not violence-free. I mean, possibly one of the most violent societies in human history was uh, the, the Mongol hordes, and they were a nomadic society. So, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't get you off the hook if you just sort of say, let's go back to the land and, and, and sort of keep, keep sheep on it. But societies such as, you know, the Australian Aborigines, the Okiek people of Kenya, the North American... Arctic Inuit groups, they do live in relationship to the land in ways that are less exploitative than those societies which have adopted wheat-based food production and the land ownership that comes with it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read uh, the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind uh, by Yuval Noah Harari, but in this he makes the, he's really interesting actually, but anyway, he makes this fascinating argument that rather than humans domesticating wheat, it might actually be better to think of it the other way around, with wheat having domesticated humans. So much of our effort as a species over the last 10,000 years has gone into the preservation and proliferation of this one crop 
for the simple reason that without it, many of us would die and would die quite quickly. So in the service of wheat, we have exploited the ground and we have systematized violence to preserve our ownership of it. And as I said, in human evolutionary terms, this is all really quite recent. Recent enough, in fact, to have still been a live issue when the oral traditions behind the Hebrew Bible were taking shape some three to four thousand years ago. And so we come to the biblical story of Cain killing Abel. You can read this as an echo of the tensions of the agrarian revolution, which occurred in the fertile crescent of the Levant, an area that includes Israel and which occurred as the direct result of the domestication of wheat. And so the story of Cain and Abel tells of the triumph of those who till the ground over those who tend the sheep. Cain, the tiller of the ground, kills Abel, who tends the sheep. But things aren't entirely clear-cut in our biblical narrative, because intriguingly, God rejects Cain's offering of grain, but receives Abel's offering of meat. This is what gets Cain so upset. He's the tiller of the ground. He's the master of the new emergent technology. He's feeding his family and far more besides from his lands. And yet, when he brings his grain offering to the Lord, the Lord looks the other way. When it becomes clear that Cain is angry, God issues a challenge to him. God says, if you do well, if you do well, you will be received. But if you do not do well, sin is lurking at your door. And at this stage in human history, it wasn't an entirely foregone conclusion that the land-based agrarian system was going to lead to good. The divine jury, at least in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, was, sorry, book, uh, book of, first reading, Exodus, um, Genesis. Get it right, Woodman. At that stage in human history, when the book of Genesis was being written, the divine jury was still out, it seems, on this new food technology, with people tilling the ground and claiming ownership of the land. Is this a good thing? I think this story asks. And, you know, you could make an argument from 4,000 years of human history that it is not, in the end, always led to entirely good outcomes. We still have poverty and starvation on a global scale, despite technically having the capacity to produce enough food for everyone to eat. The possibility exists through grain and the associated technologies that have come with it to have a system of food distribution and land management which revolutionises human flourishing, releasing people from the burden of generating their own food and enabling the glories of cultural growth and city living and to do so without resorting to violence. That is a possibility that remains before us as humankind. And this is the challenge of the story of Cain and Abel. God's warning to Cain 
is also, I think, a warning to us. If you do well, fine. But if you do not do this well, sin and violence lurk at your door. And this is a challenge that Israel has wrestled with throughout its story. And I think it is a challenge that comes to us. And this is where I want us to move now into consideration of an intriguing economic model that runs through the Hebrew Bible. And it's these three related concepts of Sabbath, sabbatical, and jubilee. The Sabbath is the idea that it is not good to work continually, and that at least one day in seven should be a day of rest. And we're going to come back to this next week, uh, but it's worth uh, noting now that this idea of, of the, the Sabbath, the seventh day, is the base layer of a broader economic set of concepts uh, that we find in sabbatical and jubilee. Then we come to our reading today, which was from Deuteronomy, the sabbatical year, in which we heard uh, about this idea that every seventh year, there's a kind of financial reset with the forgiveness of debts and the remission of obligations. And then the Jubilee year occurs every 50th year. So you have seven cycles of Sabbath, sabbaticals, so seven sevens are 49, if I remember my times tables from school correctly. So you have seven sets of seven years, so six years in a sabbatical year, six years in a sabbatical year. You do that seven times over, you've got 49 years. In the 50th year, you get the big reset, the once-in-a-generational reset. And this is where slaves are freed. And crucially, the ownership of the land is returned back to its original tribal distributions. And inherent in these systems of Sabbath, sabbatical and jubilee is an economic model. It's kind of like an economic thought experiment to try and act as a, as a counterbalance, a counterweight to the tendency towards violence and acquisition which unrestrained capitalism generates and as Cain and Abel found out to their cost, more to Abel's cost than Cain's, this system of resetting or resting the land, of releasing people from their indebtedness, is surely one of the most significant economic experiments in human history. And we find it in our shared scriptures with Judaism, not as merely an idea to consider or a thought experiment to play around with, but we encounter it there as a divine command. Do this, says the Lord. And the challenge is clear. If we want the benefits of human society, of money and property and culture and freedom from subsistence labour, all of which are good things, I think, then the only way we can do this without ending up in catastrophic violence is through a carefully regulated system of economic reform. And so, to those who might suggest that political economic theory has nothing to do with theology, God says, Sabbath, sabbatical, 
Jubilee. How are you going to live as the people of God in ways that are life-giving, life-enhancing, life-liberating? It's a really deep challenge for us, isn't it? This tradition, you see, of forgiveness from indebtedness is rooted deeply within Judaism and also within the Christian story too. We said the Lord's Prayer earlier, and our version is a paraphrase of Matthew's Gospel, sorry, of Luke's Gospel. If you were to go into Matthew's Gospel and read it from there, you get a very slightly different tenor to the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew, the bit which we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, or which those of us who grew up with older translations forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In Matthew's Gospel, it's not quite like that. It is, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, says Jesus. This idea of debt forgiveness that we find in sabbatical and jubilee in the Hebrew Bible is also there right at the heart of Jesus' command for the prayer that he wants his disciples to pray whenever they pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Simon Perry, formerly of this parish, tells us in his latest book that forgiveness of sin is a phrase whose root meaning is economic. In the original language, he says, forgiveness means liberty and sin means debt. He continues, in an empire that demanded and depended on every citizen and slave honouring their debts, forgiveness of sin, i.e. debt cancellation, was a dangerous and political and economic threat. For those who were submerged beneath the river Jordan in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, their debts were consigned to a watery grave. And when they resurfaced from the baptismal waters, they were declared debt-free before their fellow Israelites, before their leaders, and before God. That's Simon Perry's take on this, and I think he's right. So not only is our central ritual of baptism deeply rooted in this concept of the forgiveness of debts, but so also is our most recited prayer, a plea for emancipation from indebtedness. Debt forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith. And it is so because Sabbath, sabbatical and jubilee are at the heart of our parent faith in ancient Judaism. And so we come back to Greenbelt. Greenbelt this year was their 50th anniversary of the founding of the festival. It's, uh, it's one year younger than I am. And they celebrated it. They said, it is our Greenbelt Jubilee. It's our 50th year. And they produced a, a book reflecting on 50 words that sum up the Greenbelt Festival. And one of those words was the word Jubilee. And the person they got to reflect on it was uh, a woman called Anne Pettifor, who is a British economist, 
and she founded and led the Jubilee 2000 campaign, which those of us who've been around a little while may well remember. Uh, the Jubilee 2000 campaign is now called Jubilee Debt, and uh, Tim Griffiths, uh, formerly of this parish, still works for them. Anyway, what Anne says is a fairly long quote, but I am just going to read it. It takes two or three minutes, um, because she says this better than I ever could. So let's hear from Anne Pettifer. Back in 2000, we called it Jubilee, and we practice it at Greenbelt every year. It is what the economy needed then, and it is what the economy needs now. Our economy, the global economy, the economic system, is wildly out of balance. As a result, both the ecosystem and the political system are out of balance too. To restore balance to nature, to society and to the economy, we need proper enforced regulation to check imbalances. And we could start with the Jubilee Principle. A form of regulation the Abrahamic religions have practiced for more than 2,000 years, every seven days a Sabbath, every seven years a sabbatical, needs to be restored and reapplied to the economy. She says, as I write this, another US bank, First Republic, even bigger than the failed Silicon Valley Bank, has just collapsed. Its imbalances, its excess liabilities, have now been dumped on US taxpayers. And it was brought down by the weight of debts that spiralled higher as interest rates rose. It was granted the gift that will correct its imbalances. According to the IMF, total public and private debt increased in 2021 to the equivalent of 247% of global gross domestic product, falling by 10 percentage points from its peak in 2020. Expressed in dollar terms, however, global debt has continued to rise, although at a slower rate, reaching a record $235 trillion last year. She says this number spirals beyond our imagination. The debt at more than twice the world's income will never be repaid in full. It simply must be written off and debtors given a chance to start again. Just as importantly, credit, uh, the man-made system of making and meeting obligations, a system we call money, must be managed to ensure we do not promise to pay more than we are capable of. That we do not make monetary promises whose fulfilment draws down and destroys the capacity of the ecosystem which humanity holds in common for today's and future generations. In other words, we have to lower consumption and the extraction and exploitation of both nature's assets and also humanity's asset of labour. We gather every year at Greenbelt for the opportunity to enjoy our own personal jubilee, to reconnect, to listen, to laugh, to sing, to dance and to rejoice with those who share our values and beliefs. We need to take those values out into the world to wage justice for nature, for the commons, our seas, atmosphere, land and sky, and for humanity. We need to wage justice for the poor, for the homeless, for those who flee drought, floods, harvest failures and war. We need to wage justice for peace. We need a global jubilee. Thank you to Anne Pettifer for that mini sermon on jubilee.
Friends, I hope you can see the connections I'm making here between land ownership and exploitation, between wealth acquisition and violence, and the need for a new and better way of handling our common resources. And I hope you with me can take hope and inspiration from our scriptures, from the words of our Saviour, that there is a better way open to us which is honouring of creation, of humanity and of God. And that it's a way that begins with us and the way we are in ourselves and the way we handle our finances, both personally and together as a congregation. And then it affects the way we are with others and the way we vote and the way we participate in the political sphere more widely. But there's one final brief connection I want to make as we come to gather around the Lord's table. To add the Eucharistic ritual of the Lord's Supper to the rituals of baptism and prayer that I've already spoken of. The bread and the wine of communion are the product of grape and grain. They are the fruit of Cain's labours the bread we share, the wine that we pour out and share, they come from those who till the ground. And the violence of the cross of which these elements of communion speak is the violence of Cain killing Abel. But the message of Christ is that the violence of humans finds its end in the violence of the cross. The grape and the grain of the agrarian revolution become for us the symbols of forgiveness of debts, the symbols of repentance for sin. And this bread and this wine, these gifts that come from God, open for us the possibility of a new way of being human as we learn to live after the pattern of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who asks us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. Amen. In these prayers, were written by the great pastor and theologian, by Niebuhr, for his daily mortal services, Union Theological Seminary in New York City. They were published in 1974 after his death in a book entitled Justice and Mercy. Almighty God, we bring our praise and worship before you. You form the earth and created men upon it. Your hands stretched out from heaven, and your Lord commanded all their hosts. Give us grace to walk humbly, and save us from pretension in heavenly power and calling. You have made us not we ourselves. Help us to remember the limits of our power 
to do our duty within the reach our power and our wisdom. Teach us each day to ask what you let us do and help us to perform our tasks with diligence and humility. Give us grace in this fellowship to be helpful in our several responsibilities. Save us from seeking to impress our fellows or from being afraid of the judgments when we are sure what you would have us do. Help us to seek your word of truth and not to be content with the letter of the law, since it is the Spirit which gives life. Help us to learn from the prophets and sages of every age the men of faith who out of weakness were made strong, the men of learning who had so rightly to divide the world of truth. Give us, above all, the spirit of love, for if we have both knowledge and understand all mysteries, and that not love, it profits us nothing. Grant us to bear each other's burden, and so fulfill the law of love. O Lord, save your people, save the nation from their arrogant and folly, and grant them grace to walk peaceably with each other. Save the strong, the secure, the successful, and the wise, that they glory not in their might, nor in their wisdom. Save the weak, and the debased, and all who are victims of evilness and cruel men. And reveal to them the final court and judgment, where those of low degree are exalted, and the disbalance of the world redressed. Save us, O Lord, from our sins and our anxieties, and grant us full sure a hold upon your grace that the peace with passive understanding may keep our hearts, and we be enabled to walk serenely through the tumults and trials of these days, redeem the time, because the days are evil. Amen. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord smile upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord show his favor to us and give us peace. Amen.